Good morning, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Daniel, and we'll start the book of Daniel today. So, the book of Daniel, the secret to Daniel's success. What was the secret to Daniel's success? Trusting God. Where do you find that? Where's the one verse in particular that really shows that Daniel has been trusting God? Okay, that's good. So when do we purpose in our heart not to defile God? When the temptation comes or before the temptation comes? Yeah, before. So Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 says this. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So, the secret to Daniel's success is his relationship with God. This was at the end of his life when the Medes and Persians had conquered Babylon as was his custom since early days. This abiding in Christ is the secret to Daniel's walk with the Lord and the way that God could use him. It's not about, you know, I'm so good because I pray so much. It's about being available to allow God to use you. So we'll get on to that a little bit later. So as we study his life and those of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see commitment, conviction, and courage in standing up against the world system and standing for the Lord. So it inspires us, this example inspires us to live for the Lord, and it gives us good lessons for how we are to walk in the world in which we live. So I want to encourage you to see the difference that a disciplined life makes. It's not about legalism, but a disciple is someone who is disciplined. How much God can use someone who has purposed in their heart to serve God completely with no compromise, and how this purity comes only from taking time out to abide in the presence of God daily. Again, it's not, look at me, I'm Mr. Super Christian because I've logged so many hours with God. It's simply being available to be used. Now, Someone said that they are too busy to pray. Well, that's true. I mean, there's so many better things to do than pray. I mean, you could be fighting with your wife instead. You could be having arguments with your kids. You could be making stupid mistakes at work. You could be talking to the wrong people. You could be mopping up messes that you made because of your bad decisions. There's so many better things to do than pray. Sorry, I'm being quite sarcastic there. Instead, I would recommend that we are too busy not to pray. Give God time in the morning and see how much time you will save during the day. And the same goes for reading the Bible. The two should go together. So think of the time you spend arguing and fighting, wasting time on the internet or reading books or seeking pleasure and whatever you may do. You can't get this time back. It's gone. Godly prayer is submitting ourselves to God and seeking His will at the expense of our will. When we choose to obey God, we are also empowered by God. For me, I've come to the conclusion that being too busy to take the time to spend with the Lord is really me being too stupid to spend time with the Lord. 
The wise thing to do is to spend time with the Lord each day because Jesus said that without me you can do nothing. So it's all about abiding. John 15.5 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So thinking that I can be a good husband and father and worker and pastor and be able to discern God's will throughout the day without God's guidance, leading, and empowerment is pure insanity. And yet sometimes I still try to do things on my own strength and my own wisdom. Now, Daniel is not the only saint to be committed to God. Think of George Mueller, Jim Elliott, John Bunyan, D.L. Moody, and many other famous missionaries like Amy Carmichael, just to name a few. Then you've got the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. We're not talking about one guy who is better than everybody else. There's a massive cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And there's one thing that all these people have in common. They all abided in Christ. They spent lots of time with God alone and they put their relationship with God above everything else, even their own comfort. So that's probably the main thing as we go through the book of Daniel to look at his, his success as a result of his dedication to the Lord, his disciplined life. And it's not because he has to, it's because he wants to. It's all by him responding to God's grace. Now, Daniel is also a picture of Christ, but I'm not going to go into that now. We'll get into that as we get into the book. Daniel is a prophet, and because he's a prophet, there's much prophecy in the book of Daniel. And it's probably the most prophetic book in the entire Bible. Also, the book of Daniel is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. If you don't understand Daniel, then you can't really understand Revelation with a seven-year tribulation, all that kind of thing, how it all fits in with the history of Israel and the future of Israel. Now, prophecy. Did you realize that Daniel wasn't actually written until AD 50 because some really, really clever scholars said it's impossible that God could know the future and therefore it must be written after the events took place because the prophecies in Daniel are just so specific and so accurate that, you know, these are Christian higher critics, you know. So all this doubt started in about the year 300 AD. So the truth is it was written in 600 B.C., how do we know that it's true? Well, I'll get on to that. But here's a little pun here. In his own day, Daniel was placed in the lion's den, but today he's placed in the liar's den. People doubting the authenticity of the book. So either of these men are incredibly ignorant or downright fraudulent. For all one has to do is look at the Septuagint. Now, do you know what the Septuagint is? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was written in 285 BC. Now, what do you find in the Old Testament Greek translation written in 285 BC? The book of Daniel. How can people still doubt that Daniel was written before that time? (sighs) People were just so blind. They're so-called Bible scholars, but you know, I really question uh, where their heart's at. Uh, here's another evidence. 
Alexander the Great conquered his way to the Middle East. Josephus wrote that when he came to the city of Jerusalem, the high priest met with him. Alexander, he said, you're mentioned in the Bible. Then he proceeded to open the book of Daniel and show him where he fit into the prophetic picture, how 300 years earlier he was prophesied to come. So Alexander the Great was so moved that he spared the city of Jerusalem. Secular history records this event. So again, how can the higher critics say that Daniel was written in AD 50 when Alexander was spoken to about this in 322 BC? So what about the historicity of the events, the three invasions? Well, there's many secular histories out there which are quite accurate. For example, the Babylonian Chronicles, which accurately describe what happened with much detail, and they focus on the first 10 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which, of course, is the time we're talking about here. There's no contradictions. Archaeology has confirmed the various battles, and especially the one where the Babylonians and the Egyptians fought at Carchemish in May or June of 605 BC. So there's no doubt about the historicity, the authenticity of this book. Everything that's written in here is accurate, and that's all I'm going to say about it. If you want to look into all the evidence, it's quite interesting. But I want to get into the actual verses. Now, apologetics. What's a way to win an argument, a good way to win an argument? I believe is to bring it back to Jesus. We can talk about Alexander the Great, and we can talk about the... Babylonian Chronicles and things like that. But what's another proof that Daniel was written by Daniel when he said he wrote it? Well, there's a guy I know, and he quoted from the book of Daniel. I think you might know him too. Yep, it's Jesus. So Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel, and he said Daniel was written by Daniel when Daniel said he wrote it. So whether you're concerning evolution, prophecy, divine inspiration of scripture, or any other topic of debate, always take the argument back to the person of Jesus Christ. When people can't really believe that there was a literal man named Adam and a woman named Eve, don't argue evolution. It might be okay sometimes, but first you could bring the argument back to Jesus. Say, the issue is not so much what you or I think about evolution, the issue is that Jesus spoke about Adam and Eve specifically and centered a teaching about marriage on them. So either Jesus is ignorant or a deceiver or he's right. So he's not ignorant. He's not a deceiver. He's right. How do we know he's right? Because everything that he said we know to be true because of the the resurrection. Everything that Jesus says we know to be true because of his resurrection proved that he is God and God cannot lie. It verifies everything he said. Jesus verified Jonah. Jesus verified Adam and Eve. He verified Daniel. All these things. So, the book of Daniel confounds the critics, but it comforts the Christian because it confirms our faith. When people ask how we know that the prophecies in the Bible will come to pass, We can turn them to the book of Daniel and say, Daniel made predictions concerning the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek and Roman empires centuries before the events came to pass. Therefore, we can have confidence that what he says about future events too will also come to pass. Now, how much of the Bible talks about prophecy? Anywhere between 25 and 33%. 
a quarter to a third. So it's a huge chunk of the Bible. Is there any other holy book that dares to talk about prophecy, that dares to predict the future? Not to my knowledge. Why study prophecy? Because it has a tremendous purifying effect on our faith. 1 John 3, 3. After speaking about the coming of Jesus, John said, whoever has his hope purifies himself. Prophecy, the main focus on prophecy is on Jesus. Jesus is coming again. This thought purifies us. Another reason we talk about prophecy today is found in Daniel 12, 4. It says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So according to this prophecy, in the end times, there will be an explosion of knowledge, not only intellectual knowledge, but also concerning end time understanding. So God tells Daniel to seal the book. You're not going to understand it, but it will make sense to those who are living in the last days. And so what's happening today, there's a lot of teaching on prophecy. Not all of it's right, but everyone's talking about it. Why? Because we're living in the last days. Now, Book of Daniel is not just important for prophecy, but it's a blessing for us to study the life of Daniel personally. Did you know that even in his own day, Daniel was a legend? Ezekiel, who was contemporary with Daniel by prophesying at the same time, puts him in the same category as Job and Noah. That's Ezekiel 14.14, as an intercessor, a prayer warrior. And he's one of the only... A couple of Old Testament characters of whom no sin is mentioned. Like Joseph is one of the, the obvious other person where no sin is mentioned. It doesn't mean he didn't sin, but it means his life was not given to sin. So what was Daniel like? Three words to describe him. Purpose is the first word. He's a man who purposed in his heart that he would walk with God. He made that decision in his will. God's most important. I'll focus my life around him. Second, he was a man of prayer. He spent time in prayer, in a relationship. And third, he was a man of prophecy. He was interested in prophecy and was used as a vehicle for prophecy. So how can we apply this to ourselves? Well, we can pray. Lord, make me a man or woman who purposes in my heart to serve you. Make me a man or woman who prays. Make me a man or woman of prophetic understanding that I might know the urgency of the times in which I live. We can pray those prayers for ourselves. Now, the historical setting. When did all these things happen? Well, again, it's around 605 BC. But I just go back a little bit further. I'm summarizing 2 Kings 23, chapter 23. So King Josiah... He renovates the temple, and as they're doing that, they find a copy of the law, and there's a revival. He's a godly king, and there's a revival. Now, Pharaoh Necho is coming out to fight the Babylonians, and they end up fighting at Carchemish. But Josiah just won this battle against the Edomites, and he's unfortunately got a bit proud, and he goes out and fights Pharaoh Necho, and he gets killed. And so Pharaoh Necho keeps going and he gets defeated by the Babylonians at Carchemish. Now, Josiah has a son called 
Elakim. Now his name is changed to Jehoiakim by Pharaoh Necho. He reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem and he dies in Jerusalem. And it was during his reign in 605 BC that the first wave of deportation, the first invasion by Nebuchadnezzar into Judah happened. And this is when Daniel and his three friends are taken. So he remained king, but later on rebelled, after three years rebelled against the king of Babylon. And then he died. And his poor son, he's 18 years old. His name is Jehoiachin or Jeconiah or Coniah, depending which verse you read, which book of the Bible. He's there for three months. And because his dad has rebelled against the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon's coming. Now his dad's dead and he's got to face this invasion. And so he gets taken off to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is now 597 BC, and it's a second wave of deportation. And a further 10,000 of the best are taken, and this includes the prophet Ezekiel. So this is when Ezekiel goes to Babylon. So you've got the first wave in 605 BC, the second wave in 597 BC. And at this time, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Mataniah, another son of Josiah, and he changes his name to Zedekiah. And he reigns for 11 years until the third and final deportation and complete destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And that's 586 BC. So started in 605 BC, then the second one in 597, the third one in 586. Now, why did God do it this way? Why didn't he just send the Babylonians in, wipe the people out and be done with it? Well, that's a really good question. Let's find out. I'm going to read from Jeremiah. It's on the board. It's a parable of the good and bad figs. And here is God explaining what he is doing. This gives us the behind-the-scenes understanding of what God is doing. So, this is Jeremiah chapter 24. After King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon exiled Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to Babylon, along with the officials of Judah and all the craftsmen and artisans, the Lord gave me this vision. I saw two baskets of figs placed in front of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. One basket was filled with fresh, ripe figs, while the other was filled with bad figs that were too rotten to eat. And then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, Figs, some very good and some very bad, too rotten to eat. Then the Lord gave me this message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The good figs represent the exiles I sent from Judah to the land of the Babylonians. I will watch over and care for them, and I will bring them back here again. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me wholeheartedly. Now that characterizes the people from the first two deportations. So Daniel's deportation in 605 BC and then Ezekiel and the other 10,000 in 597 BC. But the bad figs, the Lord said, represent King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, all the people left in Jerusalem and those who live in Egypt. I will treat them like bad figs, too rotten to eat. I will make them an object of horror and a symbol of evil to every nation on earth. They will be disgraced and mocked, taunted and cursed wherever I scatter them. And I will send war, famine and disease until they have vanished from the land of Israel, which I gave to them and their ancestors. So 
What's God doing? He's judging the wicked, but sparing the righteous. God does this over and over again in the scriptures. Uh, Lot is removed from Sodom and Gomorrah before he judges them. God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And we find that in Genesis. This is Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, especially Lot. It's Genesis 18, 23 to 25. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? You would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So Abraham gets down to 10 people, negotiation with God. But there weren't even 10 people, so God did destroy the cities, but he still rescued Lot. Okay, And even they weren't the most godly family. So God is taking out the godly people from the kingdom, only a small number relative to how big the nation was originally, takes them out of there and puts them into Babylon where he's going to look after them there. The rest of the people, well, there was almost a two and a half year siege in Jerusalem. They died of famine, disease and war. So another lesson we can learn from this is that bad circumstances aren't always bad. The people, and this actually you read this in Jeremiah, the people who were left behind felt sorry for the ones who were taken and were hoping that they would come back. But God says, no, you don't want them to come back. You feel sorry for yourself <laughs> because you've got judgment coming. So what did the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, do to deserve being taken captive and being wiped out for 70 years? Well, that's in the next chapter, and that's in Jeremiah. So I'm just going to read the first 14 verses. And it's the 70 years of captivity. That's the title of this. This message for all the people of Judah came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign over Judah. This was the year when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon began to reign and the year he invaded Judah. Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people in Judah and Jerusalem, For the past 23 years, from the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until now, the Lord has been giving me his messages. I have faithfully passed them on to you, but you have not listened. Again and again, the Lord has sent you his servants, the prophets, but you have not listened or even paid attention. Each time the message was this, turn from the evil road you are traveling and from the evil things you are doing. Only then will I let you live in this land that the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever. Do not provoke my anger by worshiping idols you made with your own hands. Then I will not harm you. Verse 7. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshipping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's army says, Because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy or servant. I will bring them all against this land and against this people and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and a ruin forever. I will take away your happy singing and laughter. 
The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent and the lights in your homes will go out. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Verse 12. Then after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. I will bring upon them all the terrors I have promised in this book, all the penalties announced by Jeremiah against the nations. Many nations and great kings will enslave the Babylonians just as they enslaved my people. I will punish them in proportion to the suffering they caused my people. So God judged the world at the time of the flood to cleanse it of its evil and he's doing the same with the nation of Israel. He removes the righteous and destroys the rest. So the instrument of judgment that God chooses to use is the nation of Babylon. But afterward, God will judge Babylon for its violence and pride. So that's our little introduction to the book of Daniel. So let's jump into Daniel. eh? Daniel chapter 1. We might not get through the whole chapter, but we'll have a go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who have ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse? than the young men who are your age. Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies and as you see fit so deal with your servants so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days and at the end of ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies 
Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies, and the wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding, about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So there's uh, chapter 1. So we'll start in verse 1. So in the third year, the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Uh, now this king, nasty king. Jeremiah writes his scroll under the command of the Lord. The prince is taken to Jehoiakim. He gets read to him, King Jehoiakim. And he goes, ah, don't like this. Rips it up, cuts it, whatever, and throws it into the fire. And Jeremiah was told to write another copy. <laughs> and the Lord added a few things that pointed directly at Jehoiakim because of his obstinacy, his rebellion. Now, there's an apparent contradiction, so I'll just cover that quickly. It says in the third year of his reign, and then in Jeremiah 46.2, it says in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So what is it, the third year or the fourth year? Well, there's two different ways of reckoning how long a king has been reigning. Daniel reckoned a king's years after the Babylonian method. The first year of a king's reign began at the start of the calendar year after he took the throne. So if you are just become king, you're not actually in your first year of your reign until the calendar year clicks over. And that's what Daniel did, where the Jews basically do it from when you first start. That's how you overcome that apparent contradiction. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we're at the year 605 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar is coming. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, you would have thought that you were in control. But what does it say? It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Remember we read before in Jeremiah that Nebuchadnezzar was just his servant. He was doing God's will. God is in control of all the nations. And continuing in verse 2, with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So, in this first attack, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy Jerusalem. He just takes treasures from the temple, as well as the cream of the crop from all the young men of Jerusalem. He made them eunuchs. Now, physically, I'm not sure, it doesn't say. I've read different views on that. They could have made them eunuchs. They might not have. And then he educated them in the laws of science and knowledge in preparation to become administrators throughout the empire. 
And the sin of the nation of Israel has led to two things. And the first is blasphemy. So the instruments, the gold and silver platters and cups and whatever, used to worship the true and living God, are now carried away to Babylon and used in the temples in Babylon. And Guzik says, the confiscation of these items and their deposit in a Babylonian temple was a dramatic declaration by Nebuchadnezzar saying, my God is better than your God. It's shame on God. I've defeated you. And now the God of Israel has to vindicate himself. And later on, as we get to the end of the book of Daniel, Belshazzar would bring out these items from the temple and use them to worship the gods of gold and silver. And God then judges him. Now, another example of sin causing blasphemy is David's sin concerning Bathsheba and Uriah. And it says in 2 Samuel 12.14 that the surrounding nations blasphemed the Lord because of this. It says, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So when we sin, application now for us, when we sin, we cause others to blaspheme the Lord because of our bad example. The second thing that sin does is it leads to bondage. The people of God were being carried in chains to Babylon because of their sin. That's what sin does. It ensnares us and traps us. Now, the next bit of that verse is, In whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve. And I've got a quote from Ray Comfort. In Christ, Christ has made us without blemish in his sight. In his word, he has given us everything we need, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Soak your soul in the word of God and pray that God gives you the boldness to speak what you know. So the things that I mentioned here, we can find in the word of God as we study it. And verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So, what does it mean Daniel goes to this guy, this chief of the eunuchs, and he says, I don't want to defile myself. What's he talking about? He's not talking about a health problem. He's actually talking about his belief in God. He's saying, I believe in God. I don't want to disobey my God. His reason for not wanting to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine is a spiritual one. He wants to be obedient to the word of God. And it would appear that Daniel's making a big deal out of a little thing. Who cares what food you eat? You're in a foreign country. Just go with the flow. No. The only way to go on with God is to be faithful in the little things. And we might ask, Daniel, why bring religion into it? They don't care about your God. But Daniel understood that his relationship with God touched every area of his life, including what he ate. 
especially as a Jew. And if you remember, the root of sin goes back to eating forbidden food. Now, why did Daniel and his friends consider the king's food defiled? Well, there's three main reasons. It's not kosher. It doesn't fit the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Two, it's probably very likely sacrificed to idols. We learn about that in the New Testament as well. And three, in that Eastern culture, eating the king's food implied fellowship with the Babylonian cultural system. Now, Daniel did not object to the name given to him because he knew who he was and others could call him what they wanted. Daniel did not object to the Babylonian education because he knew what he believed. But Daniel did object to the food from the king's table because eating it was in direct disobedience to God's word. And the wine, why not drink the wine? Well, in the New Testament, God doesn't forbid wine. In the Old Testament, God doesn't forbid wine. But there's a principle that we find in 1 Corinthians 6.12. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient or beneficial. In other words, some of the things we're allowed to do aren't actually good for us. And Paul goes on to say, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul loved his freedom too much to be enslaved. And there's many good things that can enslave us if it had become more important than God. And I remember there was a time in my life I used to really get into Christian novels. And they used to be a blessing to me. But that was at the expense of reading the Bible. And so I didn't read the Bible when I was reading this book. And uh, you can be blessed by a good book, but it's nothing compared to reading the Bible. The Bible is true food. The books are just someone's interpretation. So, you know, that's an example of all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So everything's got to be in balance. Now, the three years of training. <laughs> Satan uses a similar strategy against believers today, wanting to indoctrinate us into the world system. Satan wants to re-identify us, rename us, in reference to the world. So Daniel's name was changed from a godly name into an idolatrous one. So a name that glorified God to one that glorified an idol. The second thing that Nebuchadnezzar tried to do was feed them on the things that he offered, his delicacies. And that's what Satan does too. Satan offers us his delicacies. Feed the old man. Feed the sinful nature. Pride, selfishness. And then... Another strategy of Satan that we find here is educate us in the ways of the world. And we need to watch out for all these traps. Nothing has changed. Think about the re-identification thing, right? Here's just one example. What are the kids being taught in school? Bill, you feel like you're a female today? Fine. You can run the girls' race today. Our identity is being challenged at every level of our being. Now, what about being fed? How do we get fed? Well, TV, music, movies, internet, social media, all those things are feeding us what the world offers. The diet of the king's delicacies. The king of this world is Satan. Okay. Schools and universities, what are they doing? They're giving us an education, specifically tailored to mold people's minds into worldly thinking, both by omission of truth and specific lies. They'll teach some facts, but those facts are neither here nor there. But they won't teach things that relate to God. 
they won't teach anything that's going to point to God. And they will actually teach some lies to deliberately turn people away from God. Now, here's a really good question, I think. Where did Daniel get such high standards? He's 15 years old. He's just a teenager. Where did he get all these standards? Well, from his parents. I think. Daniel's name literally means God is judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Michelle means none is like God. Azariah means the Lord is my help. These were all godly names given by godly parents. Now when Daniel was born, I think I mentioned this before, a revival was taking place in the land of Judah, led by a king named Josiah. He remodeled the temple, found the book of the law, and started teaching all around the place. He got people to go around and teach the book of the law to all the different villages and towns. So Daniel's parents were influenced by this, as well as the parents of the other kids. Now, what does the Bible say? There's a principle here in Proverbs 22.6. Train up your child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6. So it's a principle. Train your kids in the word and the ways of God, and they will continue to walk with God. It might take a detour, but usually they'll continue with the Lord as they get older. So think of the impact that Daniel's parents had on him. If your kids were forcibly removed from you right now, if my kids were forcibly removed from us right now, how would they fare? Do they have an example of a godly routine to follow? Have they been instructed in the things of God? Have they had an example of putting God first in all things? Have they witnessed God faithfully work and provide even in the hard times? Have they watched you trust the Lord and have a relationship with the Lord? So as parents, we have a huge task. And I think Daniel's parents must have done a good job because he taken away at a young age and he'd been trained up well. So in addition to parents at home, Daniel had purpose in his heart. That is, he decided he wouldn't defile himself. So we can be defiled by lots of different things. There's lots of things that can defile us. But victory begins when we purpose in our heart. We say, that's it, no more. And an example here, Shema, S-H-A-M-M-A-H, one of David's right-hand men. In 2 Samuel 23, the Philistines were attacking and Shema was given the job of guarding the crop, the beans, whatever it was there. When the Philistines came, everyone else ran away, ran for their lives, not Shema. He said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay in my post and do my job. Shema had purpose of heart. The Spirit of God came upon him and he whipped the entire Philistine army single-handedly just because he was watching the beans faithfully. <laughs> and that's purpose of heart. Okay, So maybe you might wonder why you're in the church nursery changing nappies Sunday after Sunday or why you're visiting people in the nursing home week after week. But if the Lord has called you to do those things, be faithful. And as he did with um, Shemna, he'll honor you and meet you there. So looking after the field of beans doesn't seem like much of a, you know, a grand task, but Shema said, no, this is what God wants me to do. I'm going to keep on doing it. So now it says that Daniel requested. So Daniel made a courageous decision. And I want to give you six reasons why this was a difficult decision for Daniel to make. So he's making a request to not eat the king's delicacies and drink the king's wine. Why was it hard? Well, the king had ordered the menu. 
And rejecting the menu was rejecting the king and could result in severe punishment. That's a risk that Daniel took. Refusing the food might have branded them as being uncooperative and it could have spoiled any chance of advancement they might have had. So, career diplomat, sorry, you guys caused trouble when you were younger. Let's chuck you out in the back paddock somewhere. And then there's the real threat of punishment. Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel man. I won't go through all the stuff that he did. The food itself was pretty attractive and probably tasted pretty good. It was the king's delicacies. This is the same food that the king was eating. So, yum yum. And a whole lot better than a vegetarian diet and water for three years. So, the temptation there. Oh, I'm going to give all that up. Am I willing to give all that up? That worldly appetite. Am I willing to give that up? And distance. He's away from his family, a long way from his family and his home. It would be easy to compromise. Just a young guy. And the last reason, it would be easy for him to think that God had let them down by allowing them to be carried into Babylon. They didn't have the knowledge of what Jeremiah wrote about the figs and everything. That was probably written after. And he's thinking, oh, what's God doing? I've been serving the Lord, my family's a godly family, and yet they were the ones who were taken captive. He could have got really bitter and down and angry, but he didn't. He didn't say, why should I risk my neck for a God who would let me down? They had faith to trust God, no matter what the circumstances were, even if God didn't fulfill their own expectations. Now, talking about purposing in your heart, we'll finish on this. In this, Daniel illustrated how to conquer a difficult trial and glorify God before others, even in the middle of a testing time. So the first step is that you have to set your heart on doing what is right. You purpose in your heart. You make up your mind beforehand that you are not going to compromise. And this shows the importance of preparing our hearts, of spending time with the Lord each day. So when the battle comes, we are ready. The armor's on. We know what we stand for. We're already in fight mode. And so when the battle comes, when the enemy comes and tries to defeat us, we're ready. Now, our life or our attitude must be positive. Daniel found favor with his superiors. How did he do that? By being obnoxious? No. By being aggressive? No. He's not going to get favor like that. So he had a positive attitude. And when we protest, we must be courteous. So Daniel requested to be excused from the king's table. Okay. Now, think about the other ways that Daniel could have protested. I'm going on a hunger strike. People do that, don't they? I'm not going to do this, and they protest, and do all this kind of stuff. Daniel gently but firmly requested to be excused from the king's table. He showed discretion. So again, don't be obnoxious. Now, self-denial. Daniel and his friends knew that this would cost them something, yet they were willing. So Spurgeon said, be ready for a bad name. Be willing to be called a bigot. Be prepared for the loss of friendships. Be prepared for anything so long as you can stand fast by him who brought you with his precious blood. And the last thing about Daniel's purposing in his heart and putting this request to the head of the eunuchs there, the test must be boldly put. We must be willing to put our faith on the line. 
And Spurgeon says, I think that a Christian man should be willing to be tried. He should be pleased to let his religion be put to the test. There, he says, hammer away if you like. Do you want to be carried to heaven on a feather bed? Do you want always to be protected from everybody's sneer and frown and go to heaven as if you were riding in the procession on Lord Mayor's Day? So we'll stop there. We'll continue in verse 9 next week. So what have you learned today? Purpose in your heart. It takes commitment. It takes discipline. We have to work on our relationship. Just like we work on a marriage. If you don't put work into a marriage, the marriage will fall apart. If you don't put work into your relationship with God, your relationship with God will suffer. Your relationship with God is only as good as the effort you put into it. How do you develop relationship or you spend time communicating you set aside time so daniel is doing that and that's the main point from today and as we go through the rest of the book it's the very first verse that i put up daniel six ten. now when daniel knew that the writing was signed he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward jerusalem he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his god as was his custom since early days his parents taught him most likely and he just kept it going kept it going he enjoyed his relationship with the lord and god blessed him he sought god's will as god showed him his will god empowered him to do his will and now we have daniel the book of daniel so we can be the same we can do the same as long as we realize that it all comes back to our relationship with god and that takes work so let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of Daniel. Lord, help us to be willing to sacrifice anything for our relationship with you. And Lord, as we grow close to you, to turn away from the things of the world and become available to do the things that you want us to do. Not caught up in the things of the world. Not too busy doing our own things and running our own lives and making lots of mistakes. But Lord, simply just trusting you and relying on you to show us what to do how to do it, and give us the power to do it. So we just pray that you'll encourage us and equip us. And Lord, we've all got room to improve. Now, Daniel's not perfect. He's just an ordinary guy, and he would have struggled. He would have been fearful. He's not a super saint. He's just an ordinary guy, but he purposed in his heart. And we can have the opportunity to do that too. We have that cloud of witnesses gone before us who have done the same thing who have been used mightily by you because they're willing to put you first. Help us to seek a relationship with you above everything else and then all these things will just happen. All the fruit will just come as we abide in you. So we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.